If you're able, please stand out of reverence for God's word as we read Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those whose hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs who can stand before his cold. He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, once again, uh, we remember this truth that the fact that you have spoken your words to us is a remarkable sign of your love. That you who through your word brought the entire universe into being, you who by your word commands galaxies, you also speak to us by your word that we would know you, that we would learn to be the way you have created us to be. Your word is good to us. And so, Father, uh, maybe even just a little bit awestruck when we begin to understand this reality, we pray that you would help us now. Help us to hear your word, that we might be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are we meant to do with our lives? I, when I wrote this out, I realized, boy, that's a, that's a big way to start. Like, I, I, I couldn't figure out a good on-ramp to get to that question, so I figured I'd just start. What are we meant to do with our lives? A few hundred years ago, some of you might know, a number of pastors in England and Scotland came together and they wanted to put together a tool 
to help parents and pastors teach kids about what they believe about Christianity, the tool that ended up being called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And that's how they began with it. They asked this question, not exactly the question, what are we meant to do with our lives, but pretty much the same thing. What is the chief end of man? That's the 17th century way of asking the same question. What are we meant to do with our lives? It's, it's a valuable question, right? Because we're constantly trying to navigate, make decisions, make choices, and there needs to be an understanding of where's our North Star? Where are we heading? Some of you might know where that question goes, but before we go there, let me just ask for a moment you to consider, if you look at your life, how is your life answering that question? That is, if someone were to look at you and see how you're organizing everything, what all of your energy and focus is on, what are you saying you believe you are meant to do with your life? Are we, with our lives, meant to try to bring about success and productivity? Or maybe our lives look like what we're saying is, what we really need to do is take care of our family. Or, or it might just be, here's what we're supposed to do with our life. We're just trying to avoid as much suffering as possible and enjoy as much as we possibly can. Now, when the the writers of the Westminster Shorter Catechism reflected on this question, they didn't negate any of those. All of those are valuable, but they would say that none of those are ultimately valuable. There is a deeper thing. What they say is that here is the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What are we meant to do with our lives? Our lives are meant for God. And it's not even exactly right to say, although this sounds very Christian, that our lives are meant to serve God. There's an element that's true, but it's actually deeper than that. God doesn't actually need us to serve Him. Our lives are meant to enjoy God. Because when we talk about glorifying God, all we're doing is saying that we are meant to help others enjoy God with us. We are meant to enjoy God and help others enjoy God with us. That is our ultimate purpose. Now, if we want to say, where do we see this in Scripture? How is it that one would come to that conclusion? There are many places we could look, but probably one of the best places to look is where we have been looking, and that is in the book of the Psalms. Throughout this summer series, we keep on coming back to the very beginning because the beginning orients us. It helps us to know what these Psalms are meant to do in us, that they're meant to, to develop in us this resilient fruitful joy, like a tree planted by streams of water. But this morning, I, I want to move from the beginning to the end. Because like every good book, when you get to the end, you see what it's all for. You see the culmination. You see the focus that everything has been leading towards. And what do we see when we get to the end of the Psalms? Psalm after Psalm, the last five Psalms, you see the same thing again and again and again. It is a command to praise. Praise the Lord. Perhaps you might have noticed that as Dave was reading our passage, which we'll be looking at throughout this. Uh, if, if you don't have it open, I invite you to have it open. If you look at the passage, you'll notice there are three stanzas. It's, it's nicely broken up, and each of them begin the same way, with a command to praise. Praise the Lord, it says in verse 1. Again, verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving and make melody to our God. Then again in verse 12, praise the Lord, Jerusalem, Praise your God, O Zion. And then if we've missed it, it finishes out with the same words, praise the Lord. Again and again, we're commanded, this is how it ends. 
And the point is to help us to understand, yes, this is how it ends. This is our end. This is our goal. You and I were made to praise our God. Now, I wonder, even as I say that, how that affects you. My guess is that when preachers like me say something like that to people like you, oftentimes this idea doesn't land terribly well. It can feel churchy. If we're honest, maybe the idea that our, our, our lives are meant to be praising God, it can feel, I don't know, almost kind of boring. And I, and I would suggest that the reason that it doesn't resonate with us is because we don't really understand how we are to praise, and we don't really understand why we are to praise God. I think sometimes when we think of praise, we just immediately go to the activity of our mouth. We think about praising just about the words that we say or the songs that we sing, but we need to understand praise is more than that. God explicitly speaks against the idea of people honoring Him with their lips but being far in their hearts. That's not really the heart of praise. And neither actually is praise about emotion, although sometimes we feel like that. But if you go back to Mount, the, the, the time around Mount Sinai when God's people were filled with emotion, praising the person they said was God but actually was just a golden calf, there was so much passion and so much blasphemy. That is not what God wants. It's not just about our emotion. Now, if we want to understand the very heart of praise, I would suggest that it is more about our attention. Praise is an act of attention that leads to us noticing what is good and savoring what is good. So I was reading not too long ago some um, marital advice in, in, in an article, and it was suggesting that oftentimes couples, especially as they kind of go in years, there's a wisdom in regularly taking time for both spouses on their own to just think about what they appreciate about the other spouse. Because, you know, so, it's so easy to start zeroing in on all the things that can annoy us, to attribute bad motives, but just to step back and guide our attention to things that are good about the other person. With the goal being that as we notice, we start, as we, our attention is there, we start noticing and being able to name, maybe even name it to our spouse. You know, you're really kind. I, I find so much encouragement from you. Or, you know, you are so steady. I know I can rely on you. And as we say it, there is kind of a savoring in the heart that can happen where our heart can say, this is good. And I would suggest that when we're commanded to praise, this is where it begins, with our attention. I don't know if you've heard, people talk about we're in an attention economy, where, where so much right now is vying for our attention. The social media and ads, and then there's the busyness and anxiety, and there's the responsibilities that are good. There are so many things, and it can drown everything out, and we can forget the very heart of our reality. And what the Psalms are telling us is that you and I need to regularly have our attention looking at God, noticing His goodness, and savoring it. And the reason we need to do this is, is not, it's not because God needs it. 
When I tell you that God commands us to praise Him, it's easy for us to hear that the wrong way. Because, you know, if a little kid keeps on telling his parents, could you please tell me I'm doing okay? It's because they're not sure. Or if an employee is saying, I'm not feeling appreciated, it's because they're feeling discouraged. God doesn't need that, right? God is not looking for someone to pat Him on the back or tell Him He's great. For all eternity, He has been a joyful trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, completely secure, completely joyful. He does not need our praise. When he tells us to praise, it's not because it's for his good, it's because it's for our good. It's because what we need. And that actually is exactly how our psalm begins. Immediately after it commands, praise the Lord, notice this this list in verse 1. It is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant A song of praise is fitting. Three different ideas here stacked upon each other. It is is good. It is good for you and for me to praise. It's good for us because it trains our hearts and our minds to know what is truly good. A number of years ago, I had a friend who, who seemed regularly to be in one unhealthy dating relationship after another. And I think ultimately what the reason was is because probably related to kind of complicated family of origin stuff in her background, she kept on seeking people who were not good for her. She valued things that were not valuable. And what she needed instead was to be able to see what is good and prize that. What, what is true for her is true for all of us. You and I have a tendency, an inclination to prize junk food, right? To, to be so focused on all the things that, that can fill our life that whenever we're doing it, like Netflix binging or busyness or whatever, these are things that are fine and we keep on focusing on them, but they're not what's truly good. Uh, Philippians has this prayer where it says, it's, it's, it's praying for our love to abound in such a way that we might approve what is truly excellent. Because it's only as our heart loves what is truly good, that our lives can be truly beautiful. And so what we have here is something that is good for us. Praise is love training. It it trains our hearts to know what we need and to know what is good. It is good for us. And what's more, praise is not just good for us. Praise, it says, is delightful for us. It is pleasant there's a lot of uh, um, evidence that a good amount of our disposition, our, our cheerfulness or whatever, is genetic. Some of us just are naturally happier than others. And of course, there are some things that happen to us where we just have some lives are easier and some lives are more difficult. But sometimes I think we can take those two truths and, and lead to believing that we have absolutely no control over our mood. We're just either happy or not. There's nothing we can do about it. But that's actually not the case. Our mood has a lot to do with our field of vision. How we feel about life has a lot to do with what we are looking at. Probably many of us experienced this a few years ago. I know I did. When, when COVID was first coming, and you know, like maybe you were like me, I was just always wanting to know more information. So I was constantly online, constantly looking at social media, everything, to try to understand what is happening here. And what I found was I was just becoming this anxious wreck. And it's not just because COVID is scary. Of course, COVID is scary. 
But it's because that was all that I was looking at. My entire field of vision was just focusing on the anxious language of what is going on. And what I needed to do was just pull back and see more. And I would suggest oftentimes that's what our problem is, that we are so focused on all of the different news and all of the controversies and that kind of thing that things just feel rotten. And here's what praise does. Praise helps us to look and see that there's something bigger. It orients our attention on God. It orients our attention on hope. It orients our attention on what we were for. When we praise, we teach ourselves joy. I mean, gratitude does that, right? Gratitude is just a time to savor. It costs us nothing but time, but allows us to rejoice in things. Praise is pleasant. And finally, we see this third one, Praise is fitting. In other words, when we praise, we are aligning ourselves with reality. You and I, I think, can be stressed sometimes because we just, we, we, we kind of start thinking that we're the ones who are at the very heart of the universe, that we're the ones who run our lives, and that's just, that's a terrible thing to be for us. What praise does is it resituates us in the way things actually are, where we, as we're praising, remember, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a small creature but I'm loved by a great God. It, it resituates us in terms of understanding realities like, oh, things are bad right now, but my hope is certain. And even as it resituates us, it helps us to become what we were meant to be. Our lives are about enjoying God, and praise moves us into that place. Here, here's the point in all of this. We are regularly looking for a life that is fulfilling, aren't we? Like that, people want a job that is fulfilling. People want family that is fulfilling. But here is the way to have a life that is fulfilling, through praise. It literally fulfills us. It makes us who we were meant to be. It gives us joy. And, and it leads us into what our purpose is. So this is what we are called to do. We are called to praise because it is for our good. That's what our psalm says. But our psalm moves from just telling us why, but it also shows us how. This is one of the great things about Scripture, that whenever God calls us to something, he also gives us the ability to do it. And here's what we have here. For the rest of the psalm, we have just these three kind of stanzas inviting our attention to look. To look at creation and see the greatness of God. And to look at our relationship with God and know how intimately He cares for us. Each stanza has a different focus that invites us to see that so that our hearts might say, yes, this is good. So in the first stanza, it, it begins with inviting us in the very middle of it to look at the stars. Verse 4. So, some of you might know that there's, uh, in the Old Testament, there's this time where God tells Abraham to look into the sky and count the stars if he can, and of course he can't. If you've ever been in, like, the middle of nowhere and looked in the sky at nighttime, it's staggering the number of stars. Scientists suggest that there's probably about 6,000 or so stars that we can see if we look in the sky without any lights nearby. So Abraham, there's no way he could have counted that. But imagine if actually God had given Abraham the ability to see all the stars in the Milky Way. And actually somehow had enabled him to just have enough endurance, to have enough lifespan to count 
all of them. Take, let's just assume it's one per second. You know, one, two, three, four. Again and again. Like, that's the, you know, hour after hour. One million, one, one million, two, one. Week after week. All he's doing is just looking at the stars and counting them. If you were to count all of the stars in the Milky Way, do you realize that today he would be about halfway finished? Because there are 250 billion stars in the Milky Way alone. I cannot, I cannot comprehend that, but here's the crazy thing. Milky Way is just one, one little galaxy. Do you know that there are one trillion other galaxies in the universe other than the Milky Way? That means there are roughly 250 billion times trillion stars in the sky. I do not have a mental category for that number. And there is no way that an illustration I can even imagine that gets us some grasp of that. And yet, verse 4 says, God determines the number of the stars and he gives to all of them their names. In other words, he doesn't just count them. He's the one who made them. He's the one who decided whether they would be a, a red giant or a white dwarf, whether they would be a supernova or a black hole. He knows each of them intimately, all 250 billion trillion of them. I have no idea what it would be like to be able to think like that, right? There, there's, I mean, and, and that's the point. Verse 5, great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. We cannot conceive what it is like to think like God and to know like God. Now, here's, here's why this is important. Here's the point that he makes in terms of our relationship with, with him. There are times that when we are brought low, it can, it can be easy to feel like we, for, we are forgotten. It can be easy to wonder if, if our little prayers are so insignificant that there is no way that our God would feel the need to pay attention to them. In fact, I think that's what was going on with Israel as they were experiencing exile. Notice the context. It's talking about the Lord building up Jerusalem, gathering the outcasts of Israel, those who had been exiled, those who had experienced judgment. Or verse 6 speaks about lifting up the humble, those who have been brought low, those who feel forgotten by society, those who wonder if maybe God doesn't see them. But the point is, God sees all 250 billion trillion stars. He knows the name of every supernova and everything else, and He knows you. He knows every cry that's on your heart. He never overlooks. He never forgets something that's important. He knows the very number of hairs on your head. The God whose mind is beyond our understanding, His attention is so vast, and He focuses on you, and He knows you and will not forget you. Isn't that good? The second stanza, again, turns our attention to something about creation, although this time it's more about complexity and how in his complexity he provides. Specifically, it speaks about providing, verse 9, for the young ravens that cry. Now, you should know something about ravens in that day were viewed kind of the way that we view pigeons in the city. They're annoying. There's just so many of them. And yet, here we see God being attentive to these annoying little ravens. In fact, if you think about all that's involved to get food to the ravens, it's rather extraordinary. 
I mean, it begins with covering the heavens with clouds. Think about what God did to make that happen. I mean, the laws of physics, sometimes we think about something being natural as if that's always the way it's been. No, this is God's design. God made it so that water would naturally evaporate and become vapor. And, and he intentionally designed air so that as it's warm, it would lift, and then when it gets up high, it gets colder, and the vapor then becomes droplets, and the droplets as they form become clouds. All of that is part of God's intentional design to make what's about to happen, happen. And then beyond that, it says he prepares rain for the earth when the droplets get too big and the weather gets right. Then suddenly rain comes down and what happens next? He makes grass grow on the hills. I was not good at biology, so I'm not going to try to go into all the detail about how grass grows. But I know that when water gets the seed, the seed becomes thinner and the root becomes spread, starts spreading and, and life forms from the grass. And then what happens? You have these animals who start munching on the grass, and they themselves fertilize the soil, and that fertilized soil then become filled with bugs and, and worms and beetles, and then the ravens finally find these beetles and worms, and they start eating them, and they come to their nest, and they regurgitate food to the young ravens who are crying out for food, and all of that God designed to make sure these little annoying ravens are taken care of. And what we're meant to see when we think about this is we have a God who who enjoys providing for his creatures. And Jesus takes this where we're meant to take this, when he says in the New Testament, if God does this for the ravens, are you not more valuable to him than they are? God delights to give to those who are in need. We, we have a tendency, I think, to feel like what will make God pleased with us is if we are productive for Him, if we do things for Him, and we completely misunderstand it. Notice, it explicitly brings us in a different direction. It says, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor the pleasure in the legs of man. This, this is army language. He, he, he's not needing an army to fight for Him. But He does take pleasure in us. But who are the ones He takes pleasure in? The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Those who hope in him are those who need, right? The ones that God takes delight in is those, are those who turn to him looking for help. Those who are like little ravens just turning up their head and crying out for food. In fact, there's another psalm that God says, open your mouth to me wide and I will fill it. And he's saying, I'm like the mom raven who wants to give you food. If you want to please God, here's the thing that's just so counterintuitive. We feel like when we ask God, we're nagging, we're pestering, and, and we don't want to kind of just keep on bringing stuff to God because we feel like eventually he'll become impatient, but God says, no, I delight in hearing your prayer. I delight in giving. I delight in providing. That is my true pleasure. He is a God who provides. Isn't that good? The final stanza focuses us now on, on the kingly command of our God. We see this image of, of winter, where verse 16, there's snow like wool, frost like ashes, crystals of ice being scattered like crumbs. For us, sometimes when we think of snow, it can have kind of like this cozy feeling because we're in this nicely heated house and we see it kind of coming down. But if you're in Israel where they do not have central heating, winter if something like this happens, which doesn't happen that frequently, it's intense. It's biting. It's 
painful. Notice he says, who can stand before his cold? Some of you might know that entire armies have been stopped by winter. It is at times a terrifying thing. And what causes it? Well, right before, he, that is our king, that is God, sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly and then snow comes. It is by just God speaking a word and suddenly intense cold that's unpleasant, that can be confronting, happens. But then once again, what happens in a couple of verses, in verse 18, he sends out his word and he melts them. God strikes down and he heals. He brings by his command winter and he thaws it out and brings the beauty of spring. All by his command. And the point is, this God is in control, and he is sovereign. But notice where it takes it in terms of our relationship with him. The same God who speaks to the, to the universe to bring things about is the God who speaks to us. Verse 19, he declared his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules or judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus, thus with any other nation. Do you understand what they're saying? When, when God speaks to a people, why would he do that? It's to establish a relationship. God was saying to his people, I want you to be my people. I want to be your God, and I will speak to you in such a way to teach you how to live because I want to bless you. I want to care for you. I want you to experience my goodness. That is what he's savoring at the end. Do you realize who we are, Israel? We are the people that the king of the universe has chosen to speak to, that we might know him. Do you know, the New Testament tells us that, that when Jesus came to the earth, he was God speaking to us in the form of flesh. And by speaking to us, Jesus was saying, I am here that I might be your king, and I want you. He comes to the Samaritan woman, who everyone else has rejected at the well, and he says, God is seeking you. Do you realize that the God who speaks and the world just does whatever he says is the God who speaks to us not just in word but in his son who dies for us because he wants you. He wants you to be his people that you might experience him and enjoy his goodness forever. Isn't that good? The point of this passage is to remind us to, to turn our attention and begin to do what we were made to do, to see God's goodness, to name it, and to savor it. Not, not just in church, not just in song. Both of those are great ways of doing it because we can do it together, which is part of the idea. But in all of life, to have our attention filled with the joy of knowing we have a God who knows us and loves us. We are almost done with our series on the Psalms. Um, and in just a moment, as we always do, I'll invite us to take a moment to kind of respond in prayer or confession. But since this is my last time this series preaching on the Psalms, let me just encourage you to consider doing one thing. I personally have been struck by just how much these Psalms are powerful. They are powerful tools given for us to form us that we might become the people we were made to be. And so let me encourage you to not allow the Psalms kind of like to stop here and start up again next summer, but to somehow find a way to make the Psalms more 
deeply yours. Maybe for you deciding, hey, I'm going to try reading through the Psalms throughout the weeks as I go and allow them to kind of settle in my heart. Or maybe there's a certain psalm that you feel like is really spoken to you that you just decide, I'm going to try to memorize that. But let me encourage, if this is meant to train our soul, then our wisdom would be to take and absorb it as much as we can because they are for our good. For we are meant to praise our God. Well, let's spend some time in in confession and prayer And then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time.